Lord Jesus Christ, come and open our hearts, Lord, that we might hear from you this morning. Lord, this is a difficult passage. Um, I pray, Lord, that each of us would receive it um, joyfully. In your name, Lord Christ, we pray. Amen. Am I a little loud to you guys? Yeah, people are nodding a little bit. Um, so, when I was in college, I had this really fun experience. Although, I, preparing for this, I didn't think it was going to be fun at the time. Uh, it was this 14-day wilderness excursion. And for a kid who enjoyed science club and video games and things like that, going outside and camping for uh, 14 days in a row, hiking uh, 16 miles a day, carrying a 40-pound pack uh, with 12 other smelly guys, that did not sound like a good idea to me. Uh, but my mother was very persistent. She, she knew that that would be a good experience for me. Uh, praise the Lord. <laughs> Camping is now a, a part of our daily life. Um, and this was, this was a magnificent trip, although uh, you, you do get to experience the full gamut of odors that the human body is capable of. Uh, that was quite an interesting uh, element of this trip. And there was one day in particular in which the leaders took us aside, not as Peter did uh, in, in our gospel text, but the leaders pulled a couple of us aside and said, you know what, we want you to uh, be our navigators for the day. And so they handed us the maps, and they said, here we are, you need to get us here. And we're like, totally, we've been doing this for a few days now, like I'm this really smart kid from the suburbs, I can totally figure this out, this is going to be no problem. And so we're hiking, and it's a beautiful day, we're following the trail, we're looking at the map, and we're like, yep, here we are. We, we looked at the map, and we knew that, okay, so when the trail veers off this way, when it splits, we're going to take this road, and, and then we're going to see this ridge here, and, and that's gonna, after that ridge, that's going to be our spot. So we're hiking, we're hiking, we're enjoying it, and you know, the clouds start to come in. And we're like, this is no problem. We're going to get there just in, you know, right before the clouds come and the, before the rain comes. We're going to be able to pitch our camp, and then we're going to be able to put our feet up. We'll make our, our food early. I mean, we're really good leaders, so this is going to go really, really well. Well, you probably can see where I'm going here. Uh, we started to realize that the path didn't exactly look like the map. And we're very confused by this. And after a while, we're like, you know, this... The, the, there's a ridge over here now, and there, there really shouldn't be, because that's not on the map. And, and we're thinking, you know, these maps, these things were made like back in the 40s. You know, land changes. And crazy Ken, who gave them to us, like, he's, he's kind of lost his mind a little bit. You know, who, who knows what he's talking about? You know, clearly, you know, if we just stay on this trail, we're going to be just fine. We're going to be just fine. Well, then the clouds have become very thick, and it starts to drizzle on us, and it starts to rain, and we're grumbling. We're getting very upset, because now this means that we've got to pitch camp in the rain. Not a lot of fun. Not a lot of fun. Weston, you're probably like, are you kidding me? That's like the epitome of fun. <laughs> uh, so we, we eventually, uh, we decide, you know what, we're just going to throw down here. And so we take off our packs, we set up our tarps and our bug nets, and we start peeling bark off of trees to get to the dry wood, and it was just, you know, we're grumbling the whole time. We're not liking this. Well, then the next day we wake up, and our kind leaders come back to us, and they're like, you know what? These, these maps are actually pretty good. The, the maps are actually pretty trustworthy. 
in fact, as soon as you stopped trusting these maps, you took us further, or you stopped trusting the maps, you took us further and further down the wrong road. We actually passed the fork that we were supposed to take, you know, when we were supposed to turn right, a very long time ago. And so we thought, or it, what, what, what I'm trying to say here is, what we thought of those maps had huge implications for our journey, didn't it? Well, Jesus Christ is taking the disciples on a journey as well. And he has this moment in which he asks them an important question. And this isn't just about maps. This isn't just about where to throw down for the night so that you can cook a nice dry meal. No, the answer to this question has huge implications for their souls. And here we are 2,000 years later, and Jesus is still asking us this question. He's asking us, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Jesus is much more helpful than a map uh, made back in the 40s. He is the author of life. And so the way that we answer that question is going to direct every step that we take in this life. It's going to have huge implications for us. And my desire is that for us here at Restoration Anglican Church, at Lake Nokomis, in Minneapolis, that we are a church who firmly understands who Jesus is and his gospel. You see, we live in a society that is so spiritually confused, don't we? It's so drunk on power. It's so distracted by petty comforts. And they desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, the great mystery of faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. This is a message that needs to be proclaimed loudly in our society today. So we're going to be looking at our gospel text this morning uh, from Mark's gospel. So if you have your Bibles or your orders of service, please open up to it. We're going to be starting there at the top at verse 27. So the text tells us here that Jesus and the disciples went to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now in the Bible, geology is theology. So whenever a place is mentioned, it's important to pick up on that place and know a little bit about the place and why Jesus is there. So Caesarea Philippi, this is actually the capital of the entire region of Philip. It's a city that Caesar had given to Herod, and in his honor, Herod had named it after Caesar and his brother Philip. And this is a place that is a center of worshiping the Caesars. This is a city that no doubt affirms that Caesar is Lord. This is a city that celebrates the military might of Caesar and Rome. It celebrates his riches. It celebrates the divine legacy of the Caesars. And obviously, there, were going to be other, there are other deities who are no doubt worshipped here, but it was the Caesar who was Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and even God of Gods in this city. And this is where Jesus takes his disciples. This is here where a homeless teacher from Nazareth comes and turns to his motley crew of fishermen and tax collectors, and it's here that he asks them, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? But first he turns his, his, direction, his attention to the people. He says, who do the people say that I am? He's asking, uh, he's kind of pitching them a low ball here. And, and the disciples respond back by saying uh, a couple sort of C or B level answers. These, these aren't the best answers in the world. They say, John the Baptist? Others say, maybe Elijah? Or maybe you're just one of the prophets? You see, none of, these, none of these answers truly measure up. 
They reveal the confusion that existed at the time about who Jesus is. They label him merely as a forerunner, as somebody who only prepares the way for God's kingdom to come. Jesus isn't really an- or satisfied with this answer, is he? And so he turns, he f- turns a little bit more focused to the question. He says, who do you say that I am? You can imagine the, the disciples kind of squirming a little bit, feeling a little bit more awkward. You know, now the finger is being pointed directly at them. Well, Peter steps forward, as he usually does. Rocky himself steps forward here. And, his, and he says, he speaks on behalf of the disciples, and his answer is actually pretty shocking. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And you can probably imagine Jesus being, you know, <laughs> this is where we kind of wonder, uh, you know, where is divinity and humili- humanity mixed? Was he surprised by this? You see, this answer kind of comes out of thin air. And this is actually the first time in the story of the book of Mark in which this word, Christ, is used. It's used in the first verse of the entire gospel when Mark is introducing it. But nowhere in Jesus' teachings, nowhere on the lips of others, is the word Messiah actually used. So it really is as if this word is, is a gift from heaven. It's a gift of faith from the Father. And it's come down to Peter and he's speaking it out. You are the Christ. Now, whenever anyone in the gospel speaks anything of authority about Jesus in Mark's gospel, what does Jesus do? Well, he tells them to be quiet. He shushes them. Even the demons, he says, be quiet. So what does that word Christ mean? Well, it's another word for Messiah. It literally means the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there were three offices that were anointed for ministry. It was the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And this title, the Messiah, the anointed one, this is the person who is the culmination of all of those offices and embodies all three. You are the anointed one. And this is what Peter says. So Jesus responds and tells him to shush. He he says, do not repeat this to anyone. There's no affirmation from Jesus in Mark's gospel. There's no, yay, we said the right things from the disciples. Peter doesn't say anything like this. And so per Jesus' pattern, he tells them to remain silent. There's no high fives. There's no congratulatory selfies. No one's publishing this moment on social media. Instead, it's shushed. And then our text makes this huge transition. You can see there in verse 31. The text says, And he began to teach them. Now this this marks not just a pivotal moment in this particular story, but this is a pivotal moment in the entire gospel of Mark. Jesus is teaching something brand new here, something that the disciples had never heard before. What he's doing is he's deconstructing their concepts of what the Messiah is, and he's teaching them something entirely new. He says the Son of Man actually must suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the religious leaders and he's going to be killed. He's not rejected by a mob. He's not going to be killed by a mob of angry um, peasants. No, he's going to be rejected by the elites, the religious leaders. People who wear collars are going to be killing Jesus here. The best of the best, you know, the people who've been to seminary and whatnot. The scribes, the preachers, the teachers. Yet he says they will ri- he will rise again. The Son of Man will suffer, but he will rise again. 
And then the text says, and he said these things plainly. And that word plainly, it's a little light there. It could say he said these things boldly or clearly. There's no room for misunderstanding here. Before, Jesus may have been speaking in parables and sort of words of mystery, but now he's speaking clearly so that the, the, the disciples know what he's talking about. And you can understand how the disciples would be a little rattled by this. This is very un-Messiah-like behavior to suffer. You see, the Old Testament, as you read through the Old Testament, you would see that the son of David is supposed to be coming back to reconstitute Israel as a leading world power. Just as God um, kicked out the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, and he purged them from the land, now it was God's turn to kick out the Romanites from the land. I know Romanite's not a real word. And you can understand, you can hear the disciples just, you know, getting excited for this Messiah moment. You know, for the last 700, 6, 5, 400 years, they've been under the rule of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and now the Romans. They've been paying taxes. They've been having their homelands taken from them. They've been having to serve in ways that they don't want to be. They've been subjected to slavery. They haven't been able to worship God freely as they would like. And they have been waiting for the Messiah to come and set them free to make Israel great again. And so you can understand why Peter's rebuke is a little bit justified. You can see in this text Peter's blood beginning to boil, can't you? They're standing here in Caesarea Philippi. They're able to look out and see these statues of Caesar these great temples built to other gods. And they're wondering, when is this going to stop? And so Peter is sitting here thinking, I just said he's the Messiah. And now he's talking about some sort of suicide mission. He's going to self-destruct. And he's saying to Jesus, you're supposed to come here and make things better than they currently are. And so what does Peter do? Well, he takes Jesus aside have you ever taken someone aside before? You know, in our corporate, corporate culture, we have these lovely little terms for this. In Apple Retail, who's known for their customer service, we were told to, to give people fearless feedback. Which that's just a kind of flowery way of saying, you know, take your friends aside and, and set them straight. Maybe you've been trained on the sandwich method, right? When you're delivering uh, criticism to someone, you tell them something good, you tell them something kind of not so good, but then you follow it up with something good again. You know, that's how you take people aside in a nice, kind way. Or maybe in taking someone aside, you invoke the, the great some people. Hey, friends, um, you know, some people have been saying this about you. And, you know, you, you should probably clean up your act a little bit. Well, the text tells us that, you know, Peter's coming at him not just with fearless feedback, or with these you know, criticism sandwiches, or the some peoples. No, Peter actually rebukes Jesus. He's using this, this language of an exorcism, of casting a demon out. And really, he's using this language with Jesus. And you kind of wonder, does Peter think, you know, maybe Jesus has been, since he's been casting out all these other demons, maybe he himself has gotten infected by a demon in some sort of way? I don't know. And maybe just as demons cause people to, to throw themselves in fires and self-destruct, you know, maybe there's a demon inside of Jesus who's causing him to want to self-destruct. And so now Peter's thinking, I need to take things into my own hands. And so he takes Jesus aside. Have you ever taken Jesus aside? 
Have you ever taken Jesus aside? You know, Jesus, I know your word says that I shouldn't share my bed with someone before getting married, but you need to get with the times, Jesus. This sounds so outdated. This sounds so unrealistic. How am I supposed to know this person? How am I supposed to know that I'm compatible with this person? You know, we've been liberated from this kind of talk, Jesus. Or maybe there's a a healing that you're demanding from Jesus. Maybe you have this mental battle going on. Jesus, I would be so much more effective in your kingdom if you took this load from me. You could really use someone like me, Jesus. You know, these struggles I'm having right now, this is really impeding your kingdom, Jesus. My gifts would be unleashed if I didn't have to take these pills all the, way, all the time. Or maybe you're demanding a promotion at work from Jesus. You've taken him aside to say, you know, Jesus, I've paid my dues here, and I keep getting passed up. Is this my reward for faithfulness, Jesus? Because this isn't boding well for your reputation. People here know I'm a Christian, and so I'm supposed to be exceeding. I'm supposed to be doing well here, Jesus. And brothers and sisters, Jesus will not be taken aside, will he? He turns to Peter and he says strong words. In fact, he takes a rebuke. He takes the rebuke of Peter and actually turns it back upon him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You see, Peter is acting like Satan in this moment. He's acting like God's adversary. And Jesus is using the same language that in the other Gospels he uses to Satan himself during the temptations. He says, Peter, you're trying to thwart the entire purposes of God right now. You have no idea what you're saying, Peter. Unless the Messiah suffers, there will be no atonement for sin. There'll be no judgment of the wicked. There'll be no resurrection of the righteous. There will be no redemption of the entire world. Peter, you're thinking of the things of man, and you need to be thinking about the things of God. Stop thinking about yourself, he says to Peter. Peter, you want liberation from the Romans? Yeah, that's fine. But God has been longing for the liberation of every human soul since the beginning of time itself. Ever since sin slithered its way into the garden and lured away the heart of mankind, God has been wanting to liberate everyone. You think 400 years is a long time. God has been waiting thousands and thousands of years for this moment. Time itself was built and designed for this moment. So don't stand in my way, Jesus says. Get behind me. Now, if that's not crazy enough, Jesus then does something even wilder there in verse 34. He calls the crowd and he calls the disciples to himself. Now, it's interesting because it doesn't really, you don't really get the feeling that there is actually a crowd there. So I wonder if this is Mark's way of kind of breaking down that fourth wall and speaking to us. Jesus is saying, Joel, come, I've got something to say to you. Molly, I've got something to say to you here. I've got something to say to you, Mike. Come, I've got something to say to you, Rick. And Jesus is calling people forth. And he says to them, If anyone would like to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever who would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Now, before we actually talk about these passages, I want to point out something very clear 
in the way in which these passages, these verses that we just read, have been abused throughout church history. These are passages that do not justify victimhood. Does your husband mistreat you? Well, put up with it. Pick up your cross. Are you being abused? Well, put up with it. Pick up your cross. Does your slave owner beat you? Well, put up with it. Pick up your cross. And these are things that the church has said. But the cross is not an instrument of manipulation. It's not an abusive spouse. The cross is not a frustration of personal fulfillment. The cross is not crushing debt or anything like this. The cross is not about accepting an oppressive order. The cross is about challenging an oppressive order. It is about standing up for the causes of truth and life, no matter where that path leads you. This reminds me of one of my favorite poems called The Valley of Vision. I'm sure many of you have read this before. The Valley of Vision kind of captures this, this element of the cross, this way of suffering. The repenting soul is the victorious soul. To give is to receive. The broken heart is the healed heart. The way down is the way up. That the valley of vision, or the valley is the place of vision. The valley is the place of vision. You see, what Jesus is teaching here is perhaps one of his most difficult teach, teachings in the entire New Testament. He says, the Messiah must suffer. I must suffer. And if you declare me as the Christ, if you follow me, then your life will be marked with suffering as well. If you see me as the Christ, then you will suffer just like me. A couple weeks ago, Molly and I had a really um, interesting experience. I'm still kind of wondering how in the world this happened. Um, but there was a bishop from India visiting, and uh, his, his friend who lives here actually called Molly and I and said, do you want to hang out with the Indian bishop? And we're like, well, who says no to this? Of course. And so uh, Bishop Kumar Swami came over, and this was really, uh, it, was, it was a blessed time. Uh, we prayed for each other. And I'm like, we're just this tiny little church plant. I mean, we're, we're pretty small. We meet in the gym. And this, this bishop, he oversees like 4,000 churches in India. We're just having this wonderful conversation. <laughs> Molly's giggling right now, just kind of how wacky it was. Uh, but Bishop Kumar uh, told us a little bit of his story. He was born into the Dalit caste uh, in India, which is the caste of the untouchables, as you might know. And society teaches them that they are subhuman. They're actually not human beings. They're not worth the same dignity as the rest of society. And he even has memories of his own mother reminding him of this. Kumar, you're, not, you're subhuman, Kumar. You're subhuman. Imagine your entire life being taught that. Well, then one day his, his older brother comes home. He's holding this black book. And he says... Kumar, I found some great news. Look, in the first few chapters of this book, it says that you and me are made in the image of God. The image of God. And he said, I didn't need to hear anything else. I knew in that moment my life was changed. Well, then he goes on to learn that God himself would actually come down to earth and die the death that we all deserve and liberate him so that he could enjoy fellowship with God. And now he's a leader uh, in India. Well, his churches are being bombed. 
Uh, as you can imagine, if you start a movement where all these untouchables are being told that they're created in the image of God, that's not going to go well for those who are in power, is it? In fact, a few weeks before our meeting, uh, one of his friends, who's a priest at a church, um, one of the Anglican churches there, was killed in one of these bombings. You know, as I think about picking up your cross, I also think about the Anglican Archbishop in Uganda, Joani uh, Luwum, whose feast day we actually celebrated uh, last week. And what Archbishop Luwum did uh, back in the 70s, is he spoke out against the regime of Idi Amin. And he said, you, you cannot kill people like this. These people are disappearing left and right. It's not okay for you as a dictator to be doing, or for anyone to be doing this. Well, if you know the story of Archbishop Luwum, he and a few other bishops were brought to Idi Amin, had dinner there, and then uh, as Idi Amin reported it, the car crashed that night. Well, as their bodies were retrieved, they were covered in bullet holes. Obviously, the car crash is not what killed them. Now, you might be hearing these stories and thinking, well, Rick, those, those are nice. Um, you know, good, good for them, those Anglican bishops, but we're not bishops. Uh, we're, we're here in America. So what does it mean to take up your cross here in the States? You know, maybe it means simply staying at home with your kids. Raising up kids who maybe they're not going to be the best readers in the class. You know, maybe they're not going to be the most coordinated uh, out on the soccer field. But teaching your kids to love others well is a remarkable, much-needed thing in this society. Having a home that is hospitable, where others in the community want to come and be with you, where it's open on Thanksgiving and people can come and dine at your table with you. Fostering a loving household that shines brightly the love of Christ is a remarkable, much-needed thing. You know, maybe in, the, in um, the workplace, taking up your cross involves risking your reputation. Maybe you've been passed up for promotions because you're not always in line with the culture of your, of your company. Maybe you've even been, been let go because of this. You don't participate in the after-parties. You're not uh, swindling some of, of your clients in the way that some of the others do. Or maybe it means that you don't spend money the same way that your friends do. Maybe it means by taking up your cross that you are reckless in the way that you give your money away. Absolutely reckless. Our text tells us that whoever gains, or what good is it to gain the entire world and lose your own soul? Maybe taking up your cross means forfeiting the entire world for the sake of your soul. You know, this text, is, as Molly and I have been talking about it, and as I've been talking about it with some of you, it's, this is a really hard text to open because of ways that it's been abused. You know, and some pastors, they'll say, they'll read a text like this, and they'll say, you know what, just keep doing what you're doing. Your lives are fine. Life's hard enough as it is. Just keep on trucking. Don't change a thing about yourself. And some pastors will go to the other end of the spectrum and will say, you know, unless you're a martyr for Jesus, you're not really saved. And so maybe the answer is somewhere in the middle, sure. But the tricky thing about this is that sometimes God calls us to either of those extremes, doesn't he? Some of us are called to go overseas. In fact, even here in our congregation, we have people who've 
been overseas or just returning from a trip. We have people who are actually serving overseas now. We've got people who are thinking about going overseas. So I don't know. Maybe the Lord's asking you to commit your life that way. But some of you, maybe even just coming here is a miracle in and of itself. And there's so much on your plate right now. There's so many things that are crushing and weighing you down. That even coming here into this gymnasium, taking the Eucharist, is a cross. You see, the power of the gospel is tremendous. It's displayed in its ability to actually topple entire empires, which the gospel has done. But the gospel is also displayed. The cross of Christ is also at work in the widow's might. When Jesus praises this woman who comes and drops two pennies in the offering plate and says, this is a remarkable work of the kingdom of God. And so my prayer for you is that as you ponder the life of Christ, that you may continually be transformed into his likeness. May you lose your life for the sake of Christ. And may the gospel power reach deep into your soul and give you the peace of Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.